0: Namaste, Namaskar, uh, welcome to uh, everybody. Uh, now we, today we're going to have a very exciting e- episode. Um, it's, it's something that everybody uh, is going on. What news about the news? What what's going on between Indo-China relations? So we have an exciting episode today with Dr. Subramanian swami and uh, Sri Ananthakrishnan. Uh, Indo-China, uh, uh, the latest developments of Indo-China relations. Um, we're, it's going to be a pretty exciting episode. I'm, I'm uh, kicked up for it. Um, we have as our guest today, uh, Mr. Ananta Krishnan. Uh, Sri Ananta Krishnan is a China correspondent for the Hindu newspaper and is currently based in Hong Kong. He's a former visiting fellow at Brookings, in, Brookings India. Anant was previously India Today's China bureau chief in Beijing between 2014 and 18, and a Beijing correspondent for the Hindu from 2009 to 14, and has reported from China close to a decade. He is the author of India's China Challenge: A Journey Through China's Rise and What It Means for India. It's published by HarperCollins. I'm pretty sure you can uh, get it from Amazon and everywhere. Um, I, I, I uh, seriously recommend that you get it because it, it's one of uh, one of the best books written on Indo-China relations. Um, so, I uh, we also welcome the, uh, I mean, our, uh, we, our uh, Dr. Swami for this. Obviously, he's going to be the lead speaker on it, and then our guests, Dr. Arvind Chaturvedi. Ji is joining us today from uh, from the aircraft, so <laughs> so he's 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 a high flying, uh, you know, on uh, you know on the move as ever. So he's joining us, but he can he can hear us, but not um, participate in today's session as his flight got diverted to Jaipur. Um, uh, without much delay, um, I'm just going to uh, get to uh, Dr. Swami. Just do make your introductions, and then you can introduce. Yes. I mean go ahead and have an interactive <clears throat> session with the uh,
1: Yeah. <coughs> well thank you very much um, ramesh um, i'm uh, delighted to uh, have in our company here in, in this program uh, Anantakrishnan. Uh, he is uh, reputed uh, intellectual scholar uh, b- author of books as well as highly placed in in a very important newspaper of india and that is called the hindu and so, uh, to hear him, uh, he, have a, he will have a point of view, I'm sure, but uh, we respect in our discussions uh, points of view, even differing points of view, as you have seen in our programs. So uh, let me ask him first five background questions that should be in his mind when he makes his initial statement and afterwards we can have back and forth. One is, what does he make of the fact? that Narendra Modi as prime minister and Xi Jinping as president met one to one 18 times over the last over the five years 19 as uh, 2014 to 2019. And yet today we are neither side is able to understand the other. What? What do you make of this? It's, uh, it's unprecedented that you meet so often. Of course, in addition to that, Modi made five extra visits, physical visits to to China. Now, second thing I would like to ha- ask him, as a particularly as a journalist, why is it that the Prime Minister has declined to name China? uh in any of his uh, remarks uh what is the strategy if he sees one or what is the reason if he sees one uh and of course if he has no clue of course he can tell us also like me we have no clue so uh he can tell us but i think it's extraordinary that by all accounts the chinese have come across the lac taken territory And uh, the Prime Minister says, nobody has come, nobody has gone, and has not taken the name of China, nor leave alone condemning China for its aggression. Third thing is that many scholars view that the one hand-to-hand combat that took place between Indian Indian troops and the Chinese troops in Galwan went entirely... To show that Indians are real fighters and they did give a bloody nose as many of us here are given to understand. But sitting from a distance uh, and with this scholarly frame of mind, do you have any uh, idea about the importance of Galwan uh, uh, clash, if any? Uh, so this is the third question. Fourth is that almost everyone I know who has done a survey of the territory through either electronic means or having gone there as military men and come back on leave and uh, spoken to me, they say that in an area called Depsang, the Chinese are in very strong possession of it. it. was on this side, our side of the LAC, and uh, near the Karakoram Pass, uh, so therefore, I think uh, one has to examine uh, why is it that, uh, uh, that when they had come this far uh, as Debsang, why is it that we have not retaliated or have we retaliated and so on. And Debsang is very close to siachen And I'm hearing now that Chinese have got an intention to take Sichin. Uh, And finally, uh, which is a very sensitive question, uh, given your position and uh, status and location, uh, you are free not to answer the question. Uh, I am hearing that uh, there are members of the Chinese government, uh, whether it's in the party or in the military uh, commission or in in the uh, in their other the parliamentary thing, which I think is called uh, um, by a fancy name, I remember, I don't remember name. But uh, there is a feeling that uh, maybe Xi Jinping has gone too far and maybe there should be some restraint uh, and so on. I mean, I'm hearing this question of some internal rumblings. Uh, he, has he heard any such thing and does he give any credibility? or credence to it. So these are the five questions I would like to pose in the beginning. And the floor is all yours, uh, Anant.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Swami, uh, for the invitation um, and for this platform. Uh, I had the pleasure of, of, of knowing you for quite a long time and actually interviewing you as well. (laughs) <laughs> uh, more on your book and when you had visited Beijing previously. Um, thanks also for the five questions uh, which i which I didn't expect. as always, the unexpected questions from you, but I will make my <laughs> best effort to answer them. Uh, before I come to the five questions, I thought I'll just very briefly speak for five, yeah. ten minutes and yeah, sure. basically just try and give your audience a sense of from my perspective where the India China relationship is now where we go from here, what's the situation on the border and also on the economy and trade front, which I know something that you've followed a lot. Um, uh, I think if you look at the most recent exchange that India and China had last week on December 6th, uh, you had India's ambassador in Beijing, Vikram Mistry, who finished his tenure uh, and I think he left today. And he had a farewell call with the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi. And if you look at the readout from that, which you can find online, it's quite uh, clear that it follows a pattern of a lot of the communications we've seen where both sides seem to have a very different view of uh, what led to the problem last year and how to solve it. Um, the, uh, to put it very bluntly, the talks that they've been having, uh, lots of rounds of talks haven't gone, uh, haven't really achieved what they set out to. It's in a bit of a stalemate. The last round of military talks, the 13th round, uh, was held on October 10th. And uh, the thirteenth round ended with both sides in in statements uh, publicly saying the other was to blame India, said it put forward forward-looking proposals to address the situation, but it said that the Chinese had come to the talks uh, without really having any proposals of their own and pretty much uh, shooting down everything India had come up with. Um, there are some signs of progress. We don't know if it's how much. On November eighteenth the diplomats had met. Uh, and they've agreed to have the next 14th round of talks uh, probably in the next two weeks. Uh, where things are on the border, uh, as you rightly pointed out, Depsang is one of uh, key areas where both sides are yet to really disengage uh, along with Demchok, uh, the Hot Springs area as well. Uh, there was, there has been disengagement in Galwan Valley, uh, which you mentioned in your introduction, as well in Tandong Lake in the north and south banks. Um, but the process, uh, as I just said, hasn't really been completed it's stalled. You haven't really finished disengagement to even consider considered de-escalation where you still have tens of thousands of troops from both sides uh, along the border, which is a very new situation that we haven't seen since probably the late 1980s. Um, I think the key point from India's uh, point of view is that you can't really have normalcy until you've had... Uh, disengagement and then de-escalation and a period of peace and tranquility. And without that, there's no going back to having a normal relationship, which is the message that India has been highlighting time and time again uh, at every level. I think the highest level of communication we've had since the crisis uh, is between the external affairs minister Shankar and his, and his counterpart Wang Yi. Uh, we don't know how often or not uh, NSA uh, has been speaking with uh, the top Chinese Uh, foreign policy official who is the Politburo member Yang I think they've maybe officially spoken once but we don't know if they've spoken the other striking thing you did mention that Prime Minister Modi has had more than 18 meetings with President Xi it's quite striking they haven't spoken once uh, since this entire crisis began uh, which is also I think quite important that you haven't had that top level communication and we can speak about that later Uh, if you look at what the Chinese have been saying uh, they've been saying in all their statements they've been blaming India for for what happened on the border, which I think all of us know goes against the the facts that we know, which is in April 2020, uh, to some extent, India was caught off guard by China mobilizing such a large number of troops and making these multiple transgressions across the LAC. Uh, But the official narrative in China has kind of flipped this around. Um, Indian officials have said they haven't received any credible explanation for why China mobilized all these troops and did it. But uh, what the Chinese foreign minister and other officials have been blaming India for everything, which is not really a surprise, since that's their view of 1962 as well. Um, I think that uh, so that's the situation on the border. It's nowhere close to being resolved. Uh, we don't really know uh, whether we'll have a recurrence of a clash. Uh, And I've only been talking about the Western sector. The other troubling development we should also talk about is in the Eastern sector. So there are three parts, there's Western sector, middle sector, and Eastern sector. Uh, We've had reports saying the Eastern sector as well, there's been a big buildup by China uh, across the border from Arunachal Pradesh, both in terms of their military deployments, as well as their civilian settlements that they've been building in some of disputed areas uh, along the LAC. Uh, And that's another controversial matter, which, uh, you had the MEA say that it is uh, a a serious issue, but you've had other officials try to kind of rebut this and say that all the constructions are on China's side. Um, On the trade front, uh, the most remarkable thing is this year, 2021, will be the first time that India-China bilateral trade will cross $100 billion. That's never happened before in history. And the fact that it's happening right now, When the relationship is at the worst it's been since the normalization of ties, since all that happened since 1976, uh, that the fact that trade has reached the highest, it's quite a remarkable thing. Um, And I'm I'm not going to get into the details of the trade numbers, but what I will say is that in 2021, India will be importing more from China than it ever has before. Uh, that's machinery, electrical machinery, things needed for big projects, power equipment, a whole range of uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients. Um, so, uh, uh, so these are some of the things. Auto components, uh, things that we need for our solar sector. It's a huge amount of imports that are still coming, even though now and then you see headlines saying that you know there are boycotts that are working. I think the the trade numbers. Uh, provide a very different picture, saying that there really hasn't been a discernible decrease uh, in the appetite for for Chinese goods in India. Uh, Indian exports to China are also increasing, but whether or not that's a good thing is a big question mark because uh, we're still exporting very low-end sort of uh, commodities like iron ore, organic chemicals, and uh, things like uh, seafood, and there isn't really a sense that we've broken into things where we want to export, whether it's pharmaceuticals uh, or even in the IT sector, where there have been a lot of non tariff barriers put in place by the Chinese that are still in place. So the trade situation is something worth looking at as well in terms of how we handle this contradiction, where on the one hand you're telling China that things can't be business as usual, but then on the other, trade is going business as usual. Uh, even though India has taken some moves, we must acknowledge... Uh, The Indian government's taken some moves, for instance. Before the border clash actually began, they put in place curbs on FDI to make it most difficult for Chinese money to come in. They banned Chinese apps. More than 200 apps have been banned. uh, And I think all of this was to kind of signal India's discontent on the border. But the actual imports and exports are still going as they are. Uh, A word on domestic sort of developments in China... Uh, Here, I'll answer the the last question that Dr. Swami posed, which is, has Xi Jinping gone too far? I think uh, the way I look at it is that the way they've covered, if you take the India-China border as an example, you really see in how the Communist Party under Xi Jinping is really using nationalism as a way to get public support. Uh, When the Galwan Valley clash happened, India immediately acknowledged that we had lost 20 soldiers. but The Chinese didn't say anything for eight months. It was only in February 2021 uh, where they announced, uh, where they said they, they've lost four soldiers. We, we have no idea whether they're more. They announced military honors for five soldiers, uh, four of them posthumously honored. And what they did was they used that time to really conduct this huge propaganda campaign within China which uh, focused on you know the, the PLA's sacrifice and they emphasized how the PLA under Xi was defending Chinese territory and so on and so forth. So uh, even if if you look at just the purely domestic propaganda, whether or not we might think it's laughable the way they conduct it, but the fact is, it's very effective within China, and uh, so much so that most people in China do believe the official narrative. Uh, and I'd say that 18 months on, uh, even uh, even though there's uh, I'll come to the next question on, on how uh, India has handled this crisis. But the fact is within China, uh, the the standing of Xi or the party hasn't really been hurt uh, by by the crisis, I think, because of the way they've controlled information. We should add that those who have questioned the official narrative have been silenced. They passed a new law saying that anyone who insults the military will get a time in jail. And You actually had Chinese bloggers, more than a dozen Chinese bloggers, who put messages questioning, for instance, the death toll on the Chinese side, and they were all arrested. Uh, so they've been very tight in monitoring what's being said. So I think that uh, we have seen recently there's a big communist party meet uh, where uh, they passed this big resolution that is, uh, from, for, 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 for those of us looking on the outside, it seems very clear that uh, Xi's grip is as strong as ever. Uh, uh, but on the inside, it's uh, quite frankly, I'll be honest and I'll tell you, I have no Uh, insight information into what's happening on the inside, Uh, especially sitting here in Hong Kong. I'm not in Beijing. Uh, And I think that uh, what I'll say is, is there opposition to Xi Jinping and is there a feeling he's gone too far? I think there's no doubt there is, of course, there are people who are concerned about the direction things are going, both in terms of the Chinese economy uh, and in terms of Chinese foreign policy, where uh, there is a I think a group of people who feel that China shouldn't be, that China is premature and trying to take on the U.S., that China shouldn't be creating problems with India on its western flank when its, when its supposed primary concern is on the eastern flank, uh, dealing with the U.S., dealing with Taiwan. There are people who feel that. But in Xi's, Jinping's China, it's very difficult to see that expressed. Ten years ago, you would have debates on foreign policy in the Chinese press, but no longer now. Everyone is sort of saying the same thing. So my answer is, I'm sure there is unease and discomfort at some things. But uh, it's difficult for us to know whether it's just a minority that's on the fringe because it's, it's, those things can't be expressed. Uh, but I think looking at the most recent resolution, looking at the lead up to the next party congress in October next year, when Xi Jinping will begin his third five-year term, I think for all intents and purposes, we shouldn't bank on him being sidelined or bank on him being weakened domestically. We should probably prepare for him being as strong as he has been the last 10 years if we're looking at it from India's point of view. In terms of, uh, uh, very briefly, uh, before opening it up to you, Dr. Swami, in terms of uh, coming to some of your questions, I think it's a very valid question that you asked in terms of the engagements that we've had with China and what happened after that. So I think beyond the meetings that they had, many of which were in multilateral summits, the two big meetings that uh, really got attention were Prime Minister Modi going to Wuhan for the informal summit in April 2018 and President Xi coming to Chennai in October 2019. Now, uh, quite frankly, I would say uh, if you just looked at the two summits in of themselves without what we know now about what's happening on the borders, I don't think you can really fault them for doing this because of the fact that uh, China had never done this with any other country. And if just looking at it from an outsider's point of view, it seemed to be that by uh, President Xi going to Wuhan, hosting Prime Minister Modi, which he'd never done for any other leader outside of Beijing, that and coming to Chennai, uh, and he came purely for this visit, that it seemed they were investing in at least keeping relations stable. And one of the takeaways from Wuhan was that both had issued, uh, quote, strategic guidance to their militaries to keep the border calm. And the most the, the thing is like post after the Doklam crisis in twenty seventeen up until April twenty twenty it was the three among the the three most tranquil phases on the boundary in the last twenty years after Doklam up until these incursions that happened in April twenty twenty so be, what happened then is a mystery. Uh, publicly, uh, officials in Delhi are saying China has yet to give an explanation. There are A lot of theories going around, um, such as. Uh, I'm not evaluating the credibility of the theory, but some that seem plausible say that after Doklam, when India crossed a settled border to go into Bhutan and stop the Chinese road building there, that uh, that the PLA was waiting to pay back in kind and waiting for the right moment to do so. Uh, there's also been sort of theories going around that uh, the PLA, among Ch- in China's military modernization, the focus now is on the Navy, on the Air Force, uh, on the rocket force, uh, and the budgets have been such that the army is becoming less and less important. There's no doubt about that if you look at the budget. And the only two unsettled land borders China has are with India and Bhutan. So what other way for the PLA to show that it needs to be still at the center of, of China's military modernizations mm-hmm. that have un- troubled borders? Uh, and there were there's also been sort of rumblings that they weren't happy with with the with the move of the of the two informal summits of the of that of the attempt to stabilize relations. But having said that. Xi Jinping is in command of the army, let's not assume that even if the army did something initially to trigger this crisis, let's not assume that Xi Jinping is not in command. Post May, June 2020, definitely after the Galwan Valley crisis, we can be sure that everything they've done since, the hardline posture on the border is something coming with his approval as he's the head of the Central Military Commission. Uh, What happened, frankly, we can all speculate why this huge investment in fixing the relationship ended up backfiring, not just for India, for China as well. So I think we should acknowledge that uh, this process has been derailed for both sides. Um, And and there's a cost for both sides as well. In terms of why the Prime Minister didn't name China, I think that uh, there's no doubt that the initial remark saying that the Chinese had not intruded was a big mistake. Uh, I think it was later they tried to correct it. Uh, But uh, from looking at at it from being here in China, it's something that's still being repeated by the Chinese media and Chinese experts saying that (laughs) India's prime minister say the PLA didn't intrude. All of this land anyway belongs to China, so there's nothing to negotiate. So I think that was a, a bit of a costly mistake to have made, even if I think subsequently at the level of the foreign ministers, it's very clear that India has conveyed that China has transgressed the LAC and they must return to status quo. There's no doubt that the Chinese officials have that message. They know that India wants to return to status quo, but from the messaging point of view, I think it was a huge mistake and, and there's no doubt about that. Finally, uh, on uh, you mentioned Sang and India's scope for retaliation. I think that uh, just looking at it from, from my point of view, and I think if you look at it objectively, One thing from this crisis is I think India has shown militarily that it can stand up to China by at least preventing further ingresses and transgressions from the initial phase where obviously India was not prepared. But since the summer of 2020, India has largely held the line. Um, And I think that we have conveyed that at least uh, on the borders that we can stand up to China. Uh, And I think that by taking the position that we won't withdraw, and that we won't settle to go back to normalcy in the relationship until our conditions are met. I think that's the right thing to do, however long that it takes. Um, And I think in terms of scope for retaliation, you did see that south of Pangong Lake. The only way that there was a disengagement in Pangong Lake was because India took the steps and occupied the heights south of the lake. And that was how we were able to get them to withdraw on the north bank of the lake. And to be fair, before that withdrawal happened in February 2021, nobody thought they were going to leave from uh, Pangong Lake's North Bank because they built so much infrastructure. So So, that it has the capacity to do these countermeasures, which I think is one reason why the Chinese haven't made uh, further transgressions that they have in the past. But, But then you still have the question, why aren't they withdrawing? I think they're going to stretch this out as long as possible. And regardless of what the Chinese foreign minister says, I think they... They feel they are imposing a cost by India stationing so many troops in forward areas at a big financial expense. It will also have a longer term consequence on India's own military modernization uh, of things that will come at the expense of obviously the Indian Navy. If, uh, if you're going to be sucked into long term deployments on the border, the Chinese are aware that they are extracting a cost. So I think in that sense, it is a, it is a difficult situation that we are in. And Dr. Swami, I think I'll end my introductory remarks there and I'm happy to take the questions.
1: Well, um, I have, uh, based on what you just said, uh, some extra questions along that line. Uh, Do you- one short question. Do you think that the 18 meetings the two had they ever discussed any disputes amongst uh, uh, the two countries as far as the border is concerned. let me go back a little. Um, I had some dealings with the Chinese. I went, uh, met Deng Xiaoping, which, uh, you know, uh, he would not meet anybody uh, unless, uh, you know, it was something special. Uh, He didn't even meet prime ministers. But in my case, uh, I was invited to come and meet him and he opened the Kailash Mansur over route in that meeting. But he also said that uh, we will uh, normalize now and send the sent the foreign minister to Delhi, which of course, uh, Mr. Nasimara was foreign minister at that time. I conveyed to him and it happened that way. And I was part of all the proceedings uh, that took place. Now, it uh, take you down the line. 1993, we worked out a LAC, which is now, uh, you know, something everybody knows. That we are not saying that the Aksai Chin is not part of India, but we are saying for the moment it's in occupation with the, in the Chinese and keep that at, st- at status quo. Everything is a status quo, and this line we will not either side will not cross. But they did cross. Now, did they cross before 2014 or after 2014 is my first question. And if they crossed before 2013, then uh, Mr. Modi had discussions with uh, Xi Jinping. Did he raise it or he didn't raise it? Uh, If it is 2020, you can say, well, the Chinese fooled you and they discussed everything and then as soon as the... talks were this uh, one-to-one talks were over, uh, they did exactly what they want. But in the event that some of the defenses that are being put out is actually backfiring on us itself to say that all this has happened before. So, uh, was there any incursion across the LAC before 2014? Uh, To your knowledge, number one. Number two, we have so far been discussing uh, the Ladakh side. Take the Arunachal side. There have been photographs come out about a village, uh, full-fledged developed village to house the uh, PLA people. And they are in our territory. That is, if because in the east, uh, of, uh, McMahon line was uh, never replaced. I mean, they, they kept saying it's disputed and all that, but uh, they withdrew beyond the uh, uh, McMohan line into Tibet after in 1962. So, it became a a, 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 a permanent line and in fact, uh, uh, they settled with Burma on the McMohan line. They said so, so they gave it a new name, but they said that we accept the McMohan line as the international boundary. So, I'm saying that in Tibet, uh, in uh, Arunachal, I don't know whether you have independent uh, in- information, but uh, there are uh, people who are being discouraged from uh, stating it, but uh, there are people who say that the Chinese have made considerable uh, progress in uh, going beyond and headed southward of the McMahon line. So these are the two questions I want to ask you.
2: No, I think the uh, both are really important questions and, and it's right that you ask them. Uh, on the dealings between Prime Minister Modi and President Xi, just broadly speaking, Dr. Swami, from my own sort of questions that I've had over uh, discussing with diplomats, what is discussed? One thing that they often uh, make a point of is that the Chinese try and avoid uh, sort of specifics uh, for, at the level of she, the reason being that they try to present him as this, you know, uh, emperor-like figure. And mm-hmm. the way they conduct the diplomacy is that someone like him would sort of deal with quote-unquote big picture issues. For example, what is the uh, what is sort of the broad views of where the relationship is going? Where can they work together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but not specifics of how do you resolve the boundary dispute. So a critic would say, is it really, I mean, worth having these big picture conversations when you don't deal with the nitty gritty? I think that uh, my own view is that uh, at least the the Indian officials who deal with China felt that it was useful to have that engagement because to put it very, very bluntly and simply, talking is better than not talking. Uh, (laughs) And that uh, they felt that uh, in the Chinese system, it is extremely important to have if she meets Prime Minister Modi. You're signalling throughout the system, right? You're signalling that they deal with, uh, they're dealing with India in a certain way, placing importance on India. It filters down to their companies, the state-run enterprises. It's, so there's a sort of cascading effect of those interactions happening. So they aren't, you know, without purpose. Uh, but on the LAC, I think there's, I think there is no doubt from my point of view. There is a serious problem when you had 18 months of a crisis and you haven't had a single conversation between the two. I think it's a very valid question to ask. What was the point of having that personal level engagement if 18 months into this crisis, they haven't spoken once? And the way China works, uh, you've had Xi Jinping and Biden recently had a virtual summit. Uh, I, I think that the U.S., the new U.S. administration has been insisting whether they deal with uh, who they deal with in China is important. They don't want to just talk to people, lower down the hierarchy for the sake of talking, because they've come to the conclusion that the only way you get things done is by talking to the people who matter. Uh, And ultimately, I think this relationship or the crisis is not going to be resolved, obviously, without Xi Jinping's consent. Um, And I think it's a very valid question to ask. Why haven't they spoken after having all these discussions when there was nothing really urgent happening? When you have the biggest crisis since the like late 1980s, the fact they haven't spoken, I think, does uh, is, is a problem. In 2015, when Prime Minister Modi came to China, he did raise this whole LAC that you mentioned, that you would come to this understanding of the LAC in 1993. You had another agreement in 1996, and you had a commitment by both sides to clarify it. So they exchanged maps in the Western sector, and then the whole process got derailed, I, I think, in the year 2000. So in 2015, you had Prime Minister Modi publicly say in a speech in Tsinghua University, which you know very well, saying that, you know, uh, mm. time that the LAC is, a, is a, the unclarified, LAC is a shadow hanging over the relationship and that both sides need to resolve it. But it was very clear right after he left, you had an official of the Chinese foreign ministry meet Indian journalists right after he left and say mm. that they are against it and uh, that they feel it's adding another level of complication resolving the so <laughs> they agreed these border agreements they have made very clear they had no interest in clarifying the lac uh, i think you have delhi still mentioning clarifying the lac but clearly i feel the ship has sailed given that what they did in 2020 was to say no uncertain terms they don't believe in clarifying the lac and it's and they will go up to what they see is, is their view of the lac and so i think that whole clarification issue is something that's really gotten detailed It's difficult to seeing it being Revived right now, um, so where it goes from here, I think that it's uh, clearly. I think there has to be a big rethink in how we in how we approach this issue and how we deal with them. Uh, and uh, I think the high level communication is something that's a, it's a big question mark. You asked very very rightly. Oh, if you had eighteen meetings, why aren't they speaking now? Um, and the other question that uh, I think that you raised on the Eastern sector, I think it applies to the Western sector as well, is a question basically about transparency. Uh, and I think the point that you made is, I think the satellite images are quite clear that the uh, you know, these civilian constructions that Ch- the Chinese are building are on Indian territory. But the, the, the response has been from those who are saying, it's not a big deal is they're saying that uh, this territory, they are right in saying that this territory has been under Chinese control since 1959. It is true. Uh, and they are right that there are PLA military outposts south of these settlements. But why they're significant, in my view, having a military outpost on a land that is yet, that we're still discussing with them officially, on land that is still under negotiation, having a military outpost is one thing. Because at the end of that negotiation, you can withdraw your military, military outposts. But uh, settling a civilian population there is extremely significant because it's an entirely new step. And the Chinese are aware that the 2005 agreement says that any settlement of the border will take into account the interests of settled population. So what you are doing by settling populations in there is saying that there's nothing to discuss. So you have changed the status quo. It doesn't matter if there's a military outpost further south of that. So I think that... uh, it goes to the heart of this question is, uh, are, are you more concerned about the reputation of the government or are you more concerned about the actual territory involved? I think that uh, frankly, I think, of, I think in terms of uh, matters of national security, it should be, uh, there's no question that I think it should be transparency first. Uh, and uh, someone reporting on it for the last year and a half there's no doubt that uh, there's been this sort of reflex to try and play it down until you can no longer play it down, and then you have to say what's happening. Uh, we still haven't had much clarity on what what was discussed on 13 rounds of talks. The statements are very brief and sparse. I think if there's any, I think you're going down a slippery slope if, you are, if any official at any level is more concerned that saying something, acknowledging something is going to make the government look bad, That means you're withholding information from the public on territory being lost, uh, or the fact of how much territory India has actually lost access to since April 2020. Uh, You asked the question whether anything happened before 2014. Absolutely, there were incursions before 2014, but those were settled. They they did drag on. You had Depsang in 2013, for instance. Throughout the 2000s, you did have those incidents which were isolated events and eventually, there was give, both sides settled them. What you never had was a multiple sort of transgressions and a loss. Uh, I think we've lost access to multiple patrolling points, and all yes. these patrolling points we had access to up until early 2020. And I think a lot of former retired army officials have gone on record to say that, uh, including in 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 Dept-Sung as well. So I think yes. there's out that there has been a change in the status quo in 2020 uh, over magnitude that was far greater than what we'd seen previously.
1: Okay. Uh, One short question, then I'll ask my colleagues. Uh, They must be all very eager to ask you also, because you're one of the most well-informed people we all know. So, we'd like to know from you. Have you heard anywhere in uh, your... uh, uh, in your capacity as a, as a, a senior journalist uh, of a very important newspaper, at least in China, it is very highly regarded newspaper, of uh, Chinese moving from Karakoram towards uh, Xiaqing. Xia and uh, I have uh, heard, and uh, I mean I could be wrong. I mean they were, I could have been misled uh, to believing a wrong thing, but I've heard that they intend to take uh, Siachin in uh, in another six months time. Uh, now, are we therefore the business of going and attending BRICS meeting, SEO meeting, you know, uh, having a trade, uh, guru Chinas. And it's a, it's a, it's a trade which is uh, against us in the sense that the balance of trade is in their favor, hugely in their favor. And uh, I see now even ISRO is now uh, involving uh, the Chinese uh, electronics. Uh, even your cricket is uh, uh, relying on Chinese uh, technology. And the Chinese have also uh, told you that uh, they, they fuse the electricity in Bombay. And to ta- take a lesson from that, these are the exact words, at least in, in that, uh, uh, what is that, uh, that TV called uh, GST or whatever they call it, um, um, in their TV channel, which uh, they have said uh, that India should learn a lesson from this, that we can do these things. So, uh, short question then is this. Do you think that uh, this, uh, you know, uh, everything is as before attitude should be given up and we should say, we are at war with China?
2: And see, and Dr. Swami, to be frank, I haven't heard that. And I'd say that, I mean, you probably have better sources than I do. So, that's... Uh, but uh, but seriously speaking, more than that, I think that it gets to the heart of what's happening between China and Pakistan. Uh, and I think that there's no question that uh, I, I believe that since 2013, when uh, China launched the Belt and Road Initiative and the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, that I think there was a sea change in how they looked at Kashmir and how they looked at uh, the India-Pakistan relationship and balancing it. Because to be, uh, if you look at the last 20 years, there was a sense that the Chinese were not wanting to get involved in Kashmir. Uh, When the Pakistanis were trying to get them to raise it, they wouldn't raise it. They would officially say it's bilateral to be solved in India and Pakistan. But that's changed. If you look at their reaction to abrogation of Article 370, if you look at the way they raised it, the UN, if you look at the fact that China and Pakistan are carrying out joint patrols and POK. um, And I think that if you look at the BRI and CPAC, for all intents and purposes, that uh, I think it's not overstating it to say that unofficially the Chinese regard POK as belonging to Pakistan and that's a big that's change. Right. Right. Um, and I think that that is a big change. And uh, so I would say that that is significant in of itself uh, regarding, uh, regardless of other things that might be happening. So I would, uh, I would certainly say that from India's point of view, the China-Pakistan equation is something we have to live with. And I think that if we were in doubt a few years ago, about the Chinese waffling or the Chinese being worried about Pakistan's instability and going and uh, the Chinese not wanting to get exposed to Pakistani terrorism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that we should probably now come away with the feeling that they are all in. Uh, I think on the on the Pakistan relationship and that's something that India has to deal with on two fronts. Um, and I think that that's here to stay. Uh, and even looking at Afghanistan, uh, the way that. Uh, they have been in sync with, uh, if you had three days before the Taliban delegation came to China, the Pakistan's foreign minister was there uh, in China. And the, the way that they are in sync on all of these issues, I think we should be completely clear about that.
1: Okay. Uh, um, uh, Arvind, and uh, anyone else wants to ask questions?
3: Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Another question. Uh for giving such a good insight into India-China relations. I have different questions. My my first question is related to geopolitics. You just mentioned about China-Pakistan access. Now, it's not only China-Pakistan in my view, but what about China-Sri Lanka? What about China-Bhutan? What about China-Afghanistan? What about China-Nepal? I mean, all these neighboring countries of India are actually, uh, the, the, the behavior is completely changed in last uh, two years, and uh, uh, naturally India is being affected. So, do you think the direct relations between India and China is uh, cold as of now, and uh, China is playing with the Indians' neighbor, India's neighbors?
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Chalapathi. <laughs> I would say that uh, you know I would put China and Pakistan in a different bracket. It's a, I think it's a completely different equation than China, Nepal, or China, Sri Lanka. Yeah. Uh, and because China and Pakistan are, both, you know, they have a completely different relationship in terms of the things their militaries do. Uh, and I think on Sri Lanka, I'll, I'll probably Dr. Swami should weigh in, uh, having recently been there and having access to their leadership. Uh, and I could be wrong, but my general sense is uh, on 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 a, on one level, they don't want to be beholden to one country. Uh, and even for all that they do with the Chinese, I don't think there's a. a I think there is a sense of concern or reluctance for them to be uh, 100% a satellite of China. I don't think that's going to happen. Same with Nepal, where I think, that, I think the difference is that the Chinese are more willing to get involved with domestic politics in these countries. than in the past, you've seen that in Nepal, where they've been trying to cobble together coalitions and to get involved in, 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 in internal politics. It's new. Um, but I think that uh, I would say that if you look at the neighborhood it seems to come in waves where you have a lot of concern on what China is doing, then you have a change in government, and then you have exaltations that the Chinese have been defeated. But I would say that if you take a longer-term view, uh, I would say that it's inevitable that because of the economy, because of the trade, these countries will have close relations with China. But uh, I would also give you a different perspective and say that not everything that they do there means that it's going to be anti uh, going to be negative for India's interests if you look at a Dora, the famous port deal people were sort of wringing the hands in India about it but then it ended up being this white elephant uh so it's not that I think from India's point of view I think we'd be making a mistake to try and compete with them rupee for renminbi and Try and be a China and waste money and splurge money there. Instead, I think that India is is what I think what India is doing now and trying to do is to come up with its own way of dealing with these countries, coming up with its own projects, sustainable projects, pointing out some of the problems with Chinese projects. We have these big companies come into big projects, often incurring a huge amount of debt. I think our sort of response should be to be different and not try to compete with the Chinese and be like China and these countries. So to put it very, very shortly, I think Pakistan is a case of its own, and we shouldn't be as alarmed by what's happening in those other countries, in my view.
1: Just one minute, can yeah. I add one thing to your sure, sure. remark? Yes, sir. Uh, of course, I've just uh, my, maybe a month ago come back from Sri Lanka and uh, was a personal guest of uh, the both Kotabaya and uh, and of course more importantly. Uh, Mahinda Rajapaksha, and I've had a full-fledged discussion. Let me tell you the other side of the story. In the beginning, uh, when uh, Rajapaksha got elected, the first uh, problem he faced was that both India and uh, China were big debtors. Uh, I mean, Sri Lanka was indebted to them for loans that had been taken by the previous government. So what they suggested is that if India could sort of uh, reschedule the repayment uh, process uh, so that they can clear the Chinese uh, uh, debt, and then uh, they will pay India over a longer period. And I was personally present when uh, Rajpaksha came here, Mahindra Rajpaksha came here to meet the prime minister. And the last person he saw was me when he called me for breakfast before taking off for Sri Lanka. And I I continued that discussion for uh, till very recently. And now we have corrected it. We were absolutely obstructionists on the question of repayment. They said, no, you have to pay. And I traced it surprisingly of our bureaucrats uh, sensitivity to the American attitude to Sri Lanka. Do you know that the Americans have called a meeting of democratic countries, they have refused to call uh, Sri Lanka?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Although it is a practicing democracy in the truest sense of the word.
3: Mm.
1: And Pakistan, of course also was Pakistan was invited. And Pakistan has been invited. <laughs> yeah. The Americans have sp- at the top level spoken to me questioning me, why are you so friendly with Sri Lanka? Okay, They they don't say that they are pro-Chinese. They say that they are a bunch of rascals. So, therefore, uh, the Chinese and the Americans don't like to be upstaged and they think Rajapaksha (coughs) was harsher on LTT than the Americans had wanted. And in India we had two, two groups. Sonia Gandhi wanted us to be very soft on the LTT, but uh, Manmohan Singh to his credit on rare occasions, uh, he took, a, he supported the hotline and we are now rid of that uh, menace called the LTT. So uh, let me say that Sri Lanka is being forced. But recently, I credit the Prime Minister, uh, he woke up to this And of course, I've been bombarding him with letters and recommendations. But I'm not saying that uh, he listens to those things. He makes up his own mind. And now the rescheduling process has started. So I'm seeing that there is a possibility now Sri Lanka will be friendly. And we should take advantage now because the Americans have humiliated them by saying that we will not allow Sri Lanka to participate this concept. Why, I, nobody knows. <laughs> it's a democracy, without doubt. So um, um, uh, 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 sorry to take up so much of your time, but the fact is that uh, the relations with our neighbors is partly our own making, including as far as Nepal is concerned. And we need to do uh, special See, you can't allow relationships to be decided by bureaucrats or bureaucrats turned ministers. It has to be somebody who understands the political nuances. And that's why we are making a mistake in dealing with these small countries. Uh, okay. Yes, uh, go on, Arvind.
3: No, no, I have one more question on uh, uh, business and trade. Uh, uh, Mr. Anand Krishnan. Uh, as you know, the, the, the Indian-Chinese uh, diplomatic relations have been soured, or uh, so to say, for the last two years. Uh, we have uh, had Prime Minister Modi declared even the banning of a TikTok, uh, 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 the mobile app. And it was made a big show that 32 apps of the Chinese uh, were banned in India and so on and so forth. And then there's a campaign by some uh, 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 fringe organizations that we should boycott Chinese goats and things like that. Now, in the light of this fact, of this background, what is happening on the business side? between India and China, it has been growing by leaps and bounds. Yes, right. Import has grown, gone, gone, gone up by 60% and even the export has gone up. Now, on one hand, we are saying that, you know, China is not a friendly country to India and therefore we should do that. We should do that. And whereas the, the, the trade between the two countries is increasing. Uh, we know, of course, for the fact that the pharmaceutical industry in India depends largely on imports of APIs, that is uh, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients from China, about sixty 68% or maybe uh, slightly more, uh, it has gone down over a period of time. Pharma's input depends on China's uh, uh, exports. So, so are we saying that in order to protect our pharmaceutical industry or some other industry, let's ignore the business part and let's keep on that diplomatic
2: war. I think that uh, the thing is that on the imports and exports side, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think that one reason we have to wait and see whether 2021 was an exception, because you had all this pent up demand from 2020. Um, and one uh, argument is that we, the quantity of goods we're importing is more or less the same, but because of... of all the strange supply chain constraints you had last year—that the cost of the same volume has gone up, which is why the trade figures are so high. Uh, but I think that the basic uh, point uh, remains that uh, those import dependencies haven't changed. Um, and I think that it's—I think the clear thing is there has to be a long-term strategy. Uh, for instance, whether it's manufacturing APIs. Uh, I think there've been lots of studies to to say, to identify areas that are, we're more sensitive to and find ways to either import them from elsewhere, even if that means the cost is going up or manufacture them at home. And I think that's the way it begins. You have to have a long-term plan to, to address those questions. Um, and you aren't going to get, I think banning apps will give you like a short-term sort of headline, but the real sort of challenge is going to be coming up with ways to address these things that can't be done overnight. Um, Some moves which have consequence, you mentioned the app man, for instance, keeping the Chinese out of 5G. I think that is a move that will have consequence and probably the right decision in the current circumstance, because for a company like Huawei or Zeti, it was a huge market and a huge potential billions of dollars that they lost. I think the 5G decision was, was sent a very clear message to China that it can't, you, you can't be what it was 10, 15 years ago because of the changed political relationship. So I'll say it's a mixed picture. They have taken hard decisions such as 5G. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there has to be much greater focus on what are you are gonna do long-term to address those questions uh, on on how to end those dependencies. You mentioned APIs, I think that's one thing. Uh, for, for instance, uh, we, ha- we have such ambitious targets, for, for instance, on the solar sector. Where, are you going, or where to meet those targets that we have those imports are going to come from china so so you have to take a call which sectors you want to open up which sectors you have to you want to sort of close off and wall off uh, and i think that, that that exercise has to happen and it's not going to happen overnight and dr swami would would know best on, on that uh, just one comment you said about the, the cost
3: of the import is going up and therefore there is a jump. No, even in terms of volume, the, the the there is an increase, number one. Number two, you talked about 5G. Only two days back, we had the contract between ISRO and OPPO. Yes. Vacation, two days back and everybody is surprised. <laughs> People are raising eyebrows. What is happening?
2: I, no, I think I, that... Uh, i think the, the the point that i would really want to make is that i think for a lot for the longest time the way china has dealt with why you have these agree, these things happen is that for the longest time you have different sort of ministries deal with china uh, you know in silos and you really had a, no, I, I think it's a genuine concern where you haven't the had a right hand state. does not know what the left hand is doing for example uh, you know for example the fact that you never had an approach where you know you're, you you are you've been one of the biggest markets for Chinese project contracting. Uh, And you've been importing huge amounts of telecom and power equipment, but you really haven't linked it to, for instance, we have been negotiating with them in good faith about getting market access. And they've been saying, yes, yes, yes. But we've never really, uh, you know, we haven't used the market like the Chinese have used their market, where they would say if a certain country wants to come in, they would have to do X, Y, and Z. But for us, it's been sort of, you know, because it suits, uh, it suited telecom. Let's, let's be clear. It suited telecom companies to have cheap Chinese equipment. So you had GOI policy, allow it. Uh, it suited power companies to have cheap Chinese equipment. So you had policy, allow it. But then on the other hand, uh, GOI was still negotiating for our companies to go there. But that was somebody else's task. So you never had a holistic approach uh, where you, for, or for instance, on the investment side, you had, uh, you know, Chinese companies come in and invest a huge amount of money into getting stakes in companies like Paytm is a big example, Zomato, all of the e-commerce companies have Chinese investment. but uh, And you can argue that it was useful for these e-commerce companies to scale up. But then on the other hand, all of this was left unconnected to our own pending problems and accessing the China market. So I would say that there has to be an approach to try and have a holistic, uh, you know, trying to use trade and investment, use your market as leverage. I think those are things we must try and think about.
1: Uh,
3: And Dr. Swami can also answer this. As you know, Mr. Anand Krishnan, uh, Dr. Swami has been saying this and suggesting that India, uh, sorry, Russia is a junior partner of China (laughs) and off late. Just a few, few last week we had the visit of Mr. Putin and India is trying to be friend, Russia. And Dr. Swami, of course, I would invite Dr. Swami's comment for the benefit of viewers. Dr. Swami said, we are junior partner of the junior partner of China. <laughs> Do you think we are looking for friends globally, wherever possible, at whichever conditions possible, in order to counter China? Is it to counter China? Can it be done? Or is just a, 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 a confusion uh, in the,
2: the, the external policy?
1: Yes, uh, Anand's question, you would like to go answer first?
2: You know, I, I, I don't think we are pursuing Russia. I mean, Dr. Swami knows more than I, but the India Russia relationship has its own logic. And I think even if you look at India's dealing with many of China's neighbors in Southeast Asia, uh, I think that we have our own relationship on our own weight. It's not that everything that we are doing is a knee jerk reaction to China. Uh, and I think, I don't think that's what's happening. And I think if that was the case, that would be a mistake. Um, and I, I don't think, I honestly don't think Delhi is under any illusions about the Russia China relationship. I think they know, but I think they're also right to feel, to right, to keep what, I mean, Russia is a hugely important defense partner. And I think that uh, they are right to pursue that relationship, just as we, are, we have deepening relations with the US, with France, with uh, countries in the EU, just as, I mean, it makes sense for us to have closer relations with Russia as well. And it's, I think it's far beyond, even if you look at the history of it, it's, it's far beyond uh, the what India-China relations are going through.
1: You know, uh, I would add this much. There's nothing wrong with the normal relations between India and Russia. There's nothing wrong with uh, commercial transactions uh, of buying their weapons, paying them. We are paying them market price. There's no, no, uh, in those days of paying rupees and all, it's all gone. We pay in foreign exchange. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, we have got to keep in mind that uh, if the United States is a, a country with which you want to have relations, and they have uh, multiple problems with, uh, uh, with Russia. Russia. Tomorrow, Russia invades um, uh, Ukraine. Is India going to condemn Russia for it? It's a, it's a huge thing for the United States. It's, they may even uh, go into military action. Uh, uh, you know, it's that serious. So, uh, if you want the United, in terms of uh, weapons, the Americans produce much better weapons than the Russians. The S-400 has uh, electronics uh, which are uh, taken from China and the first delivery which led to delay of our prepaid uh, contract was to give it to China. So, as long as you don't expect the Russians to be a counterweight to China, I I don't think that anybody in this country would quarrel having good relations with China, with with Russia. So, therefore, uh, the Russian thing should be only good bilateral relations. But that doesn't mean that we should expect them to side with us. In fact, when Putin came here, He ensured that none of the thing would refer anything to our border. This is completely different from what the Russians, uh, the Soviet Union stand was in 1971. Today, Putin came. He didn't say a word against the Chinese. Nor did he allow us to say a a word against the Chinese? So in a sense, uh, and in in Afghanistan too, the Russians didn't... uh, uh, speak up for us being left out. We were completely left out. And uh, so uh, we go with our eyes open. This is what I want to say. We have now uh, beyond nine, nine, nine o'clock. So I'll have yeah. to ask other people for short questions, then let him go. I mean, we can't torture him. No.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just a few more minutes. Uh, Arant, uh, uh, what about the others? Uh, would any I think of you. Ramesh know, is not
3: there today. Ramesh is left. Ramesh is
1: not there. And Jagdish is out of a. Out uh, of yeah, reach, yeah, 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 and uh, so uh, n- 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 that uh, that Tejas, n- Nawalgun, does he want to ask anything?
3: Tejas, can you join? Yes. Do you have any questions, Tejas?
1: Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes. So I have one question. Uh, recently, last month, we saw that uh, uh, Chinese, like uh, like PLA, on the border side, they carried out f- few drills on the military front in the Karakoram Mountains. So what do you think they are uh, like on the military movements, where they are
0: proceeding to? Are they going for a war or preparing for a war? Because we see a lot of drills being current, uh, like conducted in the mountainside. Like what views <laughs> you have on
1: that front? But, but may I say that is a drill for going to Siachen?
2: <laughs>
1: OK. Do you have any comments on this, uh,
2: no, I think that, see, they've been doing this muscle flexing. They've been having drills with uh, more regularity than ever before uh, in Tibet and Xinjiang. And all of that sort of signaling. Uh, and as to, honestly, as to no one really knows when a, when a drill leads to something else. The biggest example is how this all began in April 2020. You had annual exercises, which India thought, Were annual exercises, but then after the annual exercises, you had them divert two divisions that reached the LAC in 48 hours. So it's uh, uh, I'm no one to sort of predict what will happen, but but what I will say is yes, those drills are happening with more regularity and frequency than before. Uh, Also, their forward deployments, the infrastructure they're building. So I think that I would I'll put it very bluntly. So when you hear their diplomats say that. Uh, you know, India is a fellow partner that you know you should have we, we share common goals and so on and so forth. I think the question to ask them is if that's the case, why are you armed to the teeth? And with every passing month you are you're adding your, your presence to, to forward areas. I think that's a very clear signal I, to India about where that where China sees the relationship going.
1: By the way, um the um at no stage did the Russians side with you in uh, in this dispute when Putin came here. Mm. Uh, so, let us be very clear that, that like Jawaharlal Nehru found himself completely isolated in 1962, uh, let us at least go with our eyes open that this is a war that we have to do it ourselves. Mm. And uh, what are little bits of... Uh, support you can get, you get it. Uh, if there is a war between India and China, uh, military, uh, I don't think the Russians will give you anything. And the Americans uh, may not support you, but they will certainly give you weapons. Whether you need them or not, that's a different matter. But the fact is that uh, uh, we, you, what you just said, let's be clear who our friends are. Yeah. Okay, I think, uh, Arvind, you better... Uh, okay, Dr. Swami,
3: uh, uh, just one comment on your last thing. Uh, are we back to the non-aligned Movement?
1: No, there's no non-aligned. <laughs> we are, nobody's ready to, even uh, non-aligned, uh, you had people who are willing to be non-aligned with us <laughs> and we don't have anybody. <laughs> we you. have to become a pole ourselves.
3: Correct.
1: It may sure. take time, but this is the way to go.
3: And in the process, yeah. you may have several friends with you. Yeah, yeah they are are friends
1: you I, I, and you, those you make. You, I, I think Sri Lanka, Maldives uh, and uh, Bangladesh, they, they would be friends. Yeah. You know, they, I don't know what this, why the Americans have developed such aversion to Bangladesh. Uh, do you have any reason, uh, comment on that, uh, Anand, uh, the American attitude to Bangladesh?
2: I am as uh, perplexed as you, Dr. Swamy. And I think that the Democracy Summit as well had a few... Se- I don't think they planned it as they should have. Uh, their sort of reply as to why some were invited, some weren't. They said it was a yeah. limited <laughs> guest list. But I think yes. they, it really sort of backfired in some ways. And I think that the show... I think to me, that just showed that the Biden administration really has to kind of get its act together. They've been slow to nominate ambassadors and fill up posts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that it's, they, it, I think it sort of raises questions about whether they've thought through what they're doing. Right, right.
1: Okay, Arvind, so, all, thank you, over Mr. to
3: Aran, you. Krishna. Thank you, Dr. Swami. We were discussing latest developments in India-China relations and the situation is so dynamic that every week there is a change and there's no, <laughs> no, no, no permanent uh, situation i mean nothing no stand which india can take and say this is the the, the, the uh, uh, permanent stand between india and china situation is changing and uh, both of you uh, anand krishnan and uh, mr dr swami both of you are expert on uh, china and uh, this insight which you have provided today to our viewers is really valuable very much thank you Thank you, uh, uh, Ramesh Swami, for starting the program, though he's not there, Jagdish could not join us today. And thank you, the, thanks the uh, technical team headed by Ashish Shetty, Gadgi Rakesh, Ishwar Ayer, Tejas, Swaminathan, Vishal Mehta and Ajesh Nair. We will be meeting uh, next Sunday again, 8pm, Words of Wisdom Gyan Ganga program with a different topic, Dr. Subramani Swami and maybe a different guest. Thank you very much, all of you, for being with us. Thanks, the viewers, for supporting us. We'll be meeting next Sunday again. Till then, Namaskar, Jai Hind.